North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Uh, Dr. Kuntz, Anthony writes in, he says, a few episodes back, I think Dr. Kuntz recommended a book on capitalism or economics, one of the best in his opinion. Can you share the name of that book, please? (laughs) I wish I had any idea, but I cannot remember what I said a few episodes back, which might be like a month and a half or two months in uh, real time as far as recording goes. So I really wish I could answer that question, but I can't. So, I mean, if you had to to give a class on economics, what would be a primary textbook you'd look at? I don't remember. I might have said Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. That's, That's probably a good basic place to start. 
a major difficulty in studying economics is the difference between models or ideals and realities. And the gap is sometimes extremely wide between models and ideals on the one hand and realities on the other. So if you pick up Hazlitt, that's going to be a good introduction to the basic functioning of different economic realities. So that's as good a place to start as any. And if the if some listener actually knows what I said, then he should at least drop it in the Discord or something in order to know what's going on. Well, I'm glad, um, I'm glad to know that because I just got up for a second to go pick up a book on economics that somebody had given me and told me I should read. And it is Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. So that's, <laughs> that's good. That's good to hear. Well, good. I, I've now decided that is, in fact, what I recommended a few weeks back. <laughs> well, it's like, I, you know, back in the day, I did this worldview everlasting thing. And yeah. I mean, I put out two of those a week for four, five, six years. And people would write in like, so what what uh, video was it that you talked about this in? And like, not only did I have, I had no idea, but I named those things, the most random things I could think of. They had nothing to do with what they were actually about. And, <laughs> right. and it's like, you know, I'd, I'd love to help you here. Crazy thing is though, uh, fans, you put a little thing in Facebook and someone would pipe in, they knew exactly which one it was. So the yeah. history of power channel in the mad Christian discord is not a bad place to ask this question. There's a good chance somebody will know what we're talking right. about, but. Uh, so you're saying then the value of Hazlitt's book is that it will give you an overview of a variety of theories to economics and that it's as close to reality as possible as opposed to living in the realm of pure speculation. It, it will give you a clear sense of how economic function should occur. That's the, that is different from how economic functions do occur or from accounting for all the other factors that make economics, in my opinion, not a science, not even a social science, but an art. So this has to do with the way that you think about knowledge generally is that I favor an older model of how all knowledge fits together, obviously, because I believe theology is the queen of the different sciences, but also because I don't believe that social sciences are nearly so hard as people make them out to be, least of all econ. And econ, least of all, because there is so much on the line in the question of economics. So what you're going to get in Hazlitt is a basic understanding that most people don't possess of a concept like how does inflation occur or how are supply and demand supposed to relate to each other? What you will not get and what economics is dependent upon are theological and philosophical understandings of what man is or how man is prone to behave or how man fits into a larger political structure that is bigger and therefore controls economic functions and always has. So those kinds of things don't exist when econ is taken to be a freestanding object of scientific inquiry. I don't even think the natural sciences or the hard sciences are freestanding. I think they exist on essentially Christian or at least theistic assertions about the coherence of the world and the reasonableness of the world subject to human investigation. So none of this is freestanding. Econ is usually presented by all economic schools as a freestanding, hard, obvious discipline. And one reason that we're using Quigley and Will, especially this week, but have throughout the year is not because Quigley is infallible, but because he gives you, for instance, historical perspective on the gold standard that you're not going to get from reading Austrian e economists. 
in the same way that you're never going to get the historical perspective we're going to offer on Franklin Delano Roosevelt's The New Deal from modern monetary theorists who are telling you that, no, it really is the government's job to print as much money as necessary because fiat currency is all there ever is and all there ever has been, right? That relies on historical ignorance, that assertion does. So Hazlitt is a good place to start and then you go from there, but I would recommend that you not only go from there into more economic reading purely purely said. So generally when I am preparing for this show, for example, if I read something that is going to be shelved in Barnes and Noble under economics or finance or something, I'm getting the most history laden version of that so that I get the roundest description of what's happening. And it, flat description, two-dimensional things are are what charlatans always rely on. So they're always going to present you with an extremely simple view of things. And you will therefore not see lots of things coming. So it it sounds like you're not a fan of the free market, Dr. Coons. <laughs> uh, I am very much a fan of the free market. I don't mean by that monopoly. And I don't mean by that government control over wide areas of my life. One thing that we're going to be looking at in discussion of the what usually just gets remembered, what is really remembered is just the Wall Street crash in October of 1929. But we're going to look at a couple other things going on in and around then that will help us understand what actually happened. But what I what I do not favor is an idea that we are somehow immune from history. It's a basic error in thinking that I find in lots of realms of life that somehow we have nothing to learn from forefathers or from the past, whether things that forefathers passed down or just from events that occurred. And it's an orientation to life that is, it's no longer strange because it's so prevalent, certainly in modern America, but it is very strange in the sense that it acts as if you are accidental. And because you're accidental, you can change everything about yourself. Right. And yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to maybe change in direction, but kind of maybe building. Um, I have not read Hazlitt, so I, I really can't comment on it. And mm -hmm. people aren't asking me questions about which economic books they should read. But, but just in case, <laughs> you know, you consider me a host too, uh, what I would point you to Based on what you've just said is a book called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert yeah. Gildini, in which he will uh, show how much, much of what passes for the economy or sales uh, is more a matter of market manipulation through stories and how absolutely yeah. prone to this you are and you don't have a choice in the matter. I know you think you're smart and you can see it through it all because you mm -hmm. listen to a Brief History of Power, but... Ah. But uh, you should check this book out. It will. It will. <laughs> if, if anything is going to scare you of the evil men, um, this one it really should. Uh, they are so much in control of the narrative right now, and they know how to lie just right to make it work. Uh, one of the stories that stands out to me is this uh, scientific experiment where they could make a, um, I believe it was a turkey, wild turkey, but it might have been a different kind of bird, take care of baby polecats, which are their native-born enemies uh, right. by manipulating a what they call a click were process in their herd yeah. mentality that's built into them. And then they go to demonstrate, oh, humans have these two. And yeah. Yeah, we don't even think, you just do. And uh, it's it's fascinating. Influenced by a 
Cialdini. It sounds like you've heard of it. So yeah, it's a great book. And one thing that it's going to help you see is that marketing and sales are vastly more important for both economics and finance than either would lead you to believe. You will get use of magical terms, especially with finance experts will often be called things like wizards or mages. And that I don't think is just a a slip of the tongue. I think it's a Freudian slip. I think it reveals deeper convictions in the speaker, which is that things like money are not technologies or economic production is not a matter of technological production, that these things are in fact somehow alchemical in their Mm -hmm. processes. And there is, there's an insight there because that is often the objection to usury in the Christian tradition is that you are illegitimately creating something unnatural. So that is a, that is an assertion about production or use of technology, technologies that are illegitimate, evil, whatever, that there is truth there, but it belies, I think, often in people, either listeners themselves or uh, everyday people, is a sort of fear and an awe combined in seeing someone like George Soros making so much money off of really what it's just currency speculation. It's not really that hard to understand if you just sit. I think a lot of people, the reason that they have trouble understanding money is that they're not willing to be stupid in order to get smarter. It's sort of like learning a foreign language. You have to just accept you don't know what they're saying. And often when you're learning about economics or finance, a lot of the language is highly metaphorical, actually. It's not literal or clear. So, you know, currency fluctuation, if you're trying to understand, well, how does that affect these other four currencies? They'll talk about pressure being put on it, but they don't under- they don't explain the mechanism by which that occurs. Whereas if I'm putting pressure on your back with my hand, you understand how the pressure is happening. So you say, please take your hand off me. But you have to dig and be patient and realize that you don't know what's going on until you can understand how currency fluctuations operate in different markets based on differing exchange rates and whatever the currency is pegged to. So you have to be patient because so much of it is couched in insider jargon and and that I think all is like Cialdini would say, I think that is a marketing ploy because it makes financial expertise that much more valuable and sort of awe-inspiring to people who don't possess it. So it's, you know, I mean it's it's that, a form that, of priestcraft. Yeah, and it and it makes you a lot more money. Like if if you believe that like your life is not complete until Dr. Koontz comes to speak at this thing that you're going to go to, then not only do I pity you, but I you need to realize it's not even true. Like my conviction based on my understanding of what the Bible is is that you actually have wisdom for your life available to you through the Bible and then based on what you know through the Bible in the use of all the other gifts God has given you. You don't need to wait for me to give you expert investment advice, for example, right? So this <laughs> that that whole point relative to finance could be an entire show that I would like to do just out of sheer delight. It would it's way out of our timeline for this year, but about Jack Bogle and the and the introduction of index investing and uh, low cost investment management. But 
aside from all of that, the, the point is you're probably being fooled not by the fact that you don't know things that you could learn if you take the time to learn them. You're being fooled by the idea that you need to rely on expertise. And it's the failure of expertise that in things like the financial depression that pretty much the entire developed world went through between 1929, maybe 28 in Europe, 28, 29, and the First World War, or even, or I'm sorry, the Second World War, or after the Second World War, in the case of the countries that lost the second world war when you think about that this is not a failure primarily or even secondarily of the common man or his failure to grasp that like i should grow crops or i should feed my family failures that affect all of us are generally failures by wizards <laughs> it's wizards <laughs> who who do the large scale going to starve everyone to death kinds of failing not the failures of small, humble people. So when someone is speaking to you like a wizard or speaking metaphorically or speaking vaguely, he's probably trying to lie to you somehow. Well, I mean, I got these market options for you. So you have a diversified portfolio. Uh, it is a special deal we have this month at my company. And in fact, it will give me 8% of your 10%. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I don't, and I don't need, I don't need your active management. I mean, uh, one thing that the one thing that that passive investing has revealed is that active management does rely extremely, which is which is just the idea that you're going to pay a much higher fee yeah. in order to get my expertise or Pastor Fist's expertise or whoever's investment expertise. And the idea there is that you get a much higher fee, but you get in return much higher returns for that expertise. And the problem is that historical averages. And numbers just don't bear it out. No, monkey at a keyboard do just as well. Really, truly. <laughs> I mean, I, so, I read that somewhere. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really dem demonstrable that if, if you just guess, you're going to do as good as the average market manager over a five or 10 year period. Yeah. Like they might have a real yeah. good year, but they're going to have a few really bad years too. Yeah. And uh, so the monkeys with the typewriters thing is not true for Shakespeare, but it is true for investing, perhaps. Hmm. Allegedly. Yeah, probably. that's because of the complexity of humans and the inability to predict what we're actually going to do in mass and as groups, aside from those who are manipulating mass groups to do certain things. So here, here's a question, I guess. So was yeah. the 1929 stock market crash manipulated on purpose? Not on any kind of macro scale. So it wasn't um, like a WEF, let's reset the world plan kind of thing. It was more accidental than that. No, no. On a micro scale, there is always manipulation of things known to the would-be manipulator. So I would say, I would say it this way, right? The illusion here is that there is some engineer who is able to design a comprehensive system that either will or won't fail. Okay. And it's interesting, the metaphors that are used by people like Herbert Hoover, as we discussed, but others who during the 20s are getting very worried by things like the way the gold standard is pressing on the currency of Great Britain, which is therefore pressing on everyone who mainly uses that currency, because in the 20s, up to about 33, you have three major international currencies, the dollar and the French franc, but those are both very much pegged to the gold standard. And up to 28, the British pound sterling, it's pegged to the gold standard. So ultimately, everything is about gold. But the British have unique pressures based on their position in that system. The illusion here is that there's an engineer who's going to fix everything, 
maybe internationally. That's an illusion that we're going to talk a lot more about after we cover some of the things relevant to the Second World War. We're not going to talk about Iwo Jima or you know, the Battle of Britain or something, but we'll talk about especially technology in the Second World War. After the Second World War, you're going to get self-consciously a managed international financial system. And that's the high point of Quigley's narrative. I think the illusion of that, as well as the illusion that people have when they're saying, yes, this money manager or this piece of advice or something is going to fix all of my problems, is that there is one human being or one set of human beings, the World Bank, whatever, who has a comprehensive view, that is, who has a godlike view of things, okay? And that therefore could know where all the right levers are and pull them at the right time. The reason I don't, that I, I don't believe in macro, you know, Klaus Schwab is going to take over the world. The reason I don't believe in that is simply because I have a view of human beings that they generally delude themselves especially the greater amount of power that they have. And that's based on my reading, especially of the Bible history, but also the Bible and the Bible primarily about how kings behave, right? So think about when you get the siege around Jerusalem that you think it's all going to end there. And the taunt of the Assyrians who will be destroyed relatively soon after that is that they have never been destroyed before. No one has withstood them. So obviously no one's going to withstand them, obviously. Because one thing that you see generally in human behavior, but specifically, especially in finance, is that people who are successful generally believe their own lies. So we had some discussion on the Discord months back about whether I thought Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, had actually taken the vaccine and it had adversely affected him. And that's why he was kind of laying low for months and months at a time, especially in Mexican resorts. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I, it was speculation that it's speculation. Now, the point is, I whether you're talking about taking a vaccine that's probably going to injure you or not, it is not unreasonable to believe that human beings, especially those in power, will end up some or all, they they will succumb to some or all of their own mixture of lies and truth. That's that's something that happens over and over and over again. It doesn't mean that they are therefore utterly logically consistent in their behavior. So it's not like everyone who was selling, you know, there was before the stock market imploded in the 20s, the major financial disaster in the United States was the Florida land boom which then collapsed, partly because you didn't have the technology to make Florida attractive to as many people as you would once you got stable, you know, basically once you kill mosquitoes and get stable air conditioning everywhere. So that, that real estate bubble falls apart. Some of those people who were selling that stuff lived in Florida, some didn't, some stayed, some didn't. People are not consistent in their behavior, but their behavior is usually a better index of what they believe than their words. The problem is we usually don't know what their behavior actually is. Right. Or when we are told something about their behavior, like everyone who knows anything about investing probably has heard that Warren Buffett still owns the same small home in Omaha, Nebraska, that well, he doesn't live there. Now, it, it would take you five minutes to find out that his primary residence is in Southern California, which along with like Florida and, and, you know, like kind of the greater New York area is where most of these people in the United States live. 
but most people aren't going to investigate. So it's credulity that gives you a sense that people have a comprehensive view of things. It's, I think, embittered credulity that that makes people believe that there is one person or one group of people who therefore have a comprehensive plan to destroy everything. The irony is, if people do believe that they have a comprehensive plan, then they actually get more power (laughs) because people then begin to listen to them. I mean, there was probably a time when the listeners didn't know where Davos was. And that's because they didn't think that it mattered. Hmm. So what caused the 1929 crash? So you got a bunch of different factors here, one of which is purely the fact that stock speculation becomes vastly more popular in the United States of America. What does that mean? That that sounds like prescript to me. What do you mean? Stock speculation. This is like a magical terminology. (laughs) Okay. So this is, this is maybe, yeah, technical jargon, I guess. Speculation is distinguished from investment generally by its duration and volatility. So speculation is going to work on a much shorter timeline and its volatility is that you're going to be trading stocks much more regularly. Stocks especially could be anything, could be any kind of asset class, but whereas investment is going to be longer term and lower trading volume over time, right? So the problem here in distinguishing these things in practice, (laughs) I mean, there are several, but one is what really is the difference between this and gambling? Okay. Speculation in being short term and higher volume looks a lot more like gambling. It looks a lot where instead of putting money down on greyhounds or thoroughbreds or something, you're just doing it with stocks. Okay. Now I, yeah, and I and I have ways that I can differentiate that, I suppose, if it if it matters, but for historical purposes it doesn't matter because for historical purposes my argument against, you know, people having widespread access to sports betting or thoroughbred racing or still to this day in West Virginia greyhound racing is is not that it's fundamentally immoral for me to say I bet I can, you know, swim across this lake and you can't and we bet, you know, a case of beers on it, and then you win. And then I buy for you. Like that doesn't, I'm not sure that's fundamentally utterly immoral. The problem is most people can't stop there. Right. They have to go again and again and again and again. And they're, they, they're not doing something like an investor might do, which is, a, which is an assumption of risk, just at a different part of the financial system. When the investor says, yes, I want to invest in this person, this business idea, this company that's coming up, right? Theoretically, buying stock is investment in a future that you're now going to share both profit and loss with other people. But human beings don't think of it that way. So if I can explain it this way in terms of the casino, I think that most people think about stocks as well as real estate, as well as greyhounds, as well as anything else. They really think about it like a numbers game where there's just some balls that are going to come out of a container and those will then constitute, you know, my lucky guess. Well, I guess 36 and 71. So I'm the winner for today. 
out of the pool of money available. The financial system is much more like a poker table. There are human beings behind everything with their foibles and fallibilities. It is not an index of whether you know you are the best guesser or you have figured out which numbers always come up. But if most people believe it's a numbers game, then they behave like it's a numbers game and they win about as often as you might win in a numbers game, which is almost never. Think about it this way. Various mob bosses throughout the United States have run large-scale numbers games over time. Now, generally, state lotteries do the same thing. Why do they do that? Why don't they run poker tables? Like, why doesn't why doesn't the governor of, I don't know, Georgia play poker with a certain number of Georgians every week? It's because they can make a lot more money off of numbers games than they can off poker. Because poker would involve knowing something about human beings and behaving accordingly. Because <laughs> it's not really a game about, you know, a four of clubs. So I think that basic misunderstanding, most people think that finance is a numbers game and you just get lucky or you get better at guessing which which balls are going to come out of the chute, you know, and be pulled today. That is what drives human behavior. So what you get as America gets increased incomes after the First World War, except in the farm sector, is that you're going to have way more Americans with disposable income. And what they're going to go, what they're going to do is use that to invest, especially in stocks. A right. lot of it's in real estate, but but most of it's in stocks. So again, you you just spe- did speculation. What are stocks? Like this still is a magical term. I know what I mean. I think I know what it is. But like, how do you define that? Stocks. Stocks are some share, some financially measured share of fluctuating value in a company and you could have one share and it's worth, I don't know, $3 and 16 cents today. And then because of other people's, that is other poker players assessment of that value. And then the technologies that those other players are using. Okay. Which, which does change radically over time because information flows much faster now than it did a hundred years ago, but it's all just people using various technologies to know things and then assigning greater or lesser value. So you can bet that the stock is going to decrease in value and then you'll profit from that. Or you can you can be long on it. You can bet that it's going to increase in value. So you're going to buy a bunch right now because it's going to be worth a lot more in 18 months now, or whatever now, you're isn't thinking. Isn't the initial kind of idea though that it's more about the dividend so that you, you buy stock in a company mm-hmm. to become a partial owner of the company to receive some of the company's profits and that is your investment right you're you're an owner as opposed to just a a consumer at that point but then what happened was because some companies are more profitable than other companies mm-hmm. the stock itself shows the capacity to increase in value and so now yeah. there's like a two level game going on in which dividends the reason for the stock end up really not being the the primary thing but instead you're in the lottery of which company can get biggest that i got lucky right. enough to buy in on when they were smallest right yeah yeah and dividends are not even universal to stock holding so it's you know it, it is driven I think two tier is a good way to say it. It is driven by the originally secondary tier, which is 
you know, this is going to go up or down in value and I'm going to hedge my investments accordingly. Yeah, and this is what that, amazes me though, because there's no value in the initial stock. Like, so the company quote unquote goes public and just sells nothing, an idea right. about itself that we all just buy <laughs> and then we start trading it, right? It's not like it actually, I can go over to Apple and like take a break mm -hmm. or something like that, right? Like it, it, it has no real bearing on the actual company. It's like an extra way for the company to create asset for investment back into itself. It's, it's a money-making scheme from what I can see like on the ground. Um, and poke a hole in that, please, if, if you can. It, it, is, it is a way for both the company and theoretically the investor to make money simultaneously. I think you're right when and where, which I think is more often than not, when and where there is almost no interest in the investor per se, in protecting the investor's assets, in protecting the in, uh, investor's investment, in protecting the investor himself with his livelihood. So that is more often than not because what you're engaging when you're talking about speculation of any kind, whether it's in stocks or the Canadian real estate market or other things going on right now, you're talking about something that really... Ha it, it engages the human desire for money. Mm -hmm. It engages the love of money. And the difficulty there is how extremely powerful that love is versus other loves that could be engaged in human beings. So you can, you can, for instance, create a lot of pity in human beings by showing them starving children. You cannot create the same kind of drive in most human beings by showing them starving children as you can by mentioning that they're going to be able to make a lot of money if they do X and Y and Z. And because what we're dealing with here is human nature and human nature is prone to extreme love of money. And I think Luther observes perceptively that perceptively, perceptively in the large catechism that that actually grows over time. <laughs> so as, as lust cools with biological change, mm -hmm. as you age, the love of money grows <laughs> because it's still there. You can still. You can still pursue it and it and it seems like your staff and your stay, you know. So, but I, I mean, I think I think one problem with the way that people think about the Great Depression is that they think it was caused by individual stock speculation. That what happened was people became more and more panicked over 28 and throughout 29 down to the fall of 29. And therefore they began to just go crazy and sell off stocks and sell off stocks. And then the stock market crashes in late October, 1929. And that causes the great depression. One problem with that is that depressions, economic hard times never have such a unitary cause. So it's because see, see how this works, right? If I say that the problem is that people are being greedy, which I just said, and they were, then what we need to do is make sure that people can't be greedy and we need to control human behavior. Because if we just do that one thing, which we have focused on in the news, or it might be the only thing you know about the, a, a cause of the Great Depression, then you're going to be like, oh, okay, well, then it makes sense that the government would then go on to control more behavior because, of course, human beings can't control themselves. So there's going to be a focus on something that people knew before 1929, which is that human beings in groups, especially where money is concerned, generally behave in 
more or less the most insane way you could imagine, especially under stress. <laughs> That's not new. That was known before. That was handled in different ways, but it was used at the time of the Great Depression as the excuse, especially for removing a variety of other economic liberties that we'll talk about. But what's going to what's not going to be blamed here or seen as at all a problem is, well, what if the desire for power over other people, such as the federal government, is going to gain? What if that's actually more of a threat to our lives long term than the fact that someone was greedy in 1929? Because, you, yeah, be, well, well, yeah, because I mean, what if like, yes, <laughs> well, mean, because there, there because there are so many other causes for for the Great Depression. Right, right. Right. And it's not it's not like as of November 1929, suddenly like half of America is starving. OK, because what happens is that economic changes have both a chain of effects running up to them and a chain of effects coming out of them. So running up to the stock market crash is Britain's difficulties with it, with its currency, which affects everybody because we're already globally interconnected in the 1920s. The speed of that doesn't happen like it does today, but it's there. So they have their own problems. America is dealing, therefore, with anything that is economically related to Britain already having uh, industrial difficulty before 1929. You're also dealing with various real estate bubbles, chiefly Florida's collapsing before that. So what's happening is that all of these other things are going on at the same time. And when human beings look at that, what they want to do is find a unitary cause so they can find a unitary solution. So the unitary cause is then going to become the fact that the stock market bottoms out after falling progressively throughout the year in October 1929. It's going to recover from there. And actually, immediately, the Hoover administration is going to begin working overnight in order to make sure that Americans are not on the streets starving especially as industrial production declines. So coming out of the stock market crash, the Hoover administration is going to shore up some banks. Stop me if this sounds familiar. They're also going to become engaged in a program of charity distribution. But what they're doing there is that they'll cut government expenditures drastically and then use the savings from those and they'll pass the money down to local governments. So like your city council would be responsible for making sure that there are no homeless in Rockford, Illinois. Yeah, that just sounds so much better than canceling student loans to me. I mean, it, it almost is like <laughs> a reasonable approach. Well, yeah, and the, the the difference, the big difference between Hoover with the first roughly three years of the Great Depression and Roosevelt with however many other years you want to assign to the Great Depression is that Hoover sees the government as at all stages except the local needing to work indirectly with individual American families and households. So everything is going to be routed through something else, if it can be at all. The government, the federal government, will not be personally involved in any American's life if it can be, if it can be avoided at all. Okay, so that's that's a philosophical difference. So what's also happening here is that in a time of crisis, you begin to get very deep let's say, unveilings of what people actually believe. And I, I think that that's a salient point to remember, because part of the reason that we're talking about this 
is because cancellation of student loans drowned out for most people this week, the Fed chair statement in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, that rate tightening, see, I'm using the jargon, that rate tightening was going to increase, meaning that interest rates were going to continue going up yeah. uh, as set by the Federal Reserve. So that actually matters a lot more for economic functioning in modern America than cancellation of $10,000 when the average debtor owes how much and and in all likelihood owes it to a for-profit college. There, there are specifics to the holding of student loans that have to do with electoral politics. And part of it is that Black Americans hold a vastly disproportionate amount of student loans. And Biden is in what I think is just kind of a, I mean, just as far as pure politics goes, I respect the move. He's trying to draw, drive voter turnout from his most reliable voter base. Mm. It's it's not really that complex. He's trying to get very young people and Black Americans to vote with gratitude to the Democratic Party. It's It's not really a whole lot more complex than that. The amounts aren't really that great. And it, they know it's economically stupid. But we can talk about that as we talk about the New Deal probably next week. So I don't I, I mean, it's politically shrewd. It's long term disastrous. So it goes. I'm not sure it's politically shrewd. I think I think it could be. I think it could be in a different time, in a different place. I'm not sure it's going to drive votes like like even someone who if they're already like Biden's the best president ever. And man, I, mm-hmm. I just love this party. That's not his base right now. His base is like, what's going on? Like, I hate, I hate Trump, but what's going on? Yeah, and, and I don't think this like fires them up. They thought Roe versus Wade was going to fire them up. That didn't. If it, this is nothing beside Roe versus Wade. Again, I think people yeah. care about the economy, but like, okay, ten thousand dollars off my sixty thousand dollars of debt. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's great, but I don't actually feel that. I don't, it's not like I got the money in my pocket or anything. So I, I don't. I don't know. I politically shrewd, maybe. Um, it's, it's a nice yeah, try, we'll see. a nice try by another old man, uh, an old man who doesn't know what he's doing, you know, kind of thing. Uh, it, I don't know. Uh, Mammon though. Okay. So let's get back to this idea for a second. Yeah, um, sure. you, you want to talk about perennial versus temporary in human behavior and, and yeah. we kind of, we've kind of touched on that. Um, but I want to like emphasize that here a little bit. Um, and I think one of the ways to start doing that is to realize what a wide, breach exists between the word money and the word mammon, uh, the the concept of money as we kind of use it now versus that much broader understanding of uh, worldly power, um, not, not, not worldliness, but the, the thing which drives worldliness, that money is just sort of a, a corner piece in. And, and I don't know that I understand this well enough, but it seems to me that a, a major part of the confusion in the way that we face this battle right now is that the word money is so um, uh, one-sided, flat, uh, and that mammon, it, it was just a more complex concept. And so the love of money is like, well, I, nobody really loves a dollar bill. I mean, I mean, you find when you pick it up, it's maybe a little dirty. You find a hundred, like, oh, that's great. But it's not like I'm like hugging it or nothing, right? Um, it's It's the power behind it that, that seems to drive. And, and that's where mammon has a, a, a broader reach. I'm not trying to advocate. We just use the word mammon all the time, but I, I do think the word money is a weak word. I guess that's what I'm saying. 
I, I think money, I think money should be seen as a purely technological word in the same way that I say hammer or truck hmm. or something that it can achieve certain things for me or be used for certain purposes. Mammon is much more comprehensive because it involves also some sort of agency that will operate through money specifically. In this case, a demonic agency that operates through money which is a much better explanation, for instance, of things that you get in any recession. And when when someone especially is overtaken by demons, he can be used by people who are not similarly overtaken in order to kind of hedge their own behavior as reasonable. So if I can find somebody that that scammed, you know, hundreds of people in 1929 and then you know jumped off the 40th story of a building in manhattan in 1931 then that's my scapegoat and he carries all the sin out into the desert and then it's over then there's no more then there's expiation and there's an end to the problem right that's that is that is why generally governments that want power over you will treat perennial human problems as if they are temporary but close to the big financial crash of the early 2000s that that eventually precipitates Occupy Wall Street. And we've said that was kind of the last time the, the left looked like itself before it switched to kind of pure ethno-narcissistic politics, also called identity politics, but they're, they're really specific about what that is. It's, you know, adulation of this or that protected class. During that financial scandal, you brought it, you know, you might hear, oh, well, they were offering subprime mortgages to unqualified borrowers. Or more likely than that, you're going to hear about Bernie Madoff, who scammed generally people of his own ethnic group, fellow Jews who invested their life savings with him. And the reason that you get these specific and this is these specific instances, and the reason that you you get, I mean, there there are plenty of podcast series devoted to Bernie Madoff specifically. The reason to do that is so that you don't draw any perennial lessons from what happened. It's all temporary. And then the guy goes to jail or the government fixes it or whatever. And then the problem is over. So you look at the Great Depression and it's a one-off and then the government fixes it and then it's over. Or we get rid of this in human history, or we get rid of that, or we eradicated, you hear this in disease control, we eradicated this disease. That's acting as if nature no longer exists, either in, you know, the capacity to bring dengue fever to the United States, or as if there is no such thing as human nature. And at various points in the past, we have fixed it. So we were speculating on stocks, or the bankers were evil, or there was a bank run, which there's going to be into the very beginning of the Roosevelt administration in 33. But if you take the right steps, there we go. If you take the right steps, then what you're going to be able to do is you're going to engineer a better system and everything basically works like a machine, including human beings. So you just have to engineer them the right way. We saw this with COVID with human biology and human everyday behavior. What happened in the Great Depression is very much like it in kind, just different in the topic, is that they were trying to engineer human economic behavior. So during COVID, for example, you have restrictions on when and where and how you're going to be able to have a business or go to work. 
during the Great Depression, especially when the Roosevelt administration comes in, the National Recovery Administration is going to send men into your town and make sure that your small business is selling things in the way and at the price that they want you to. Okay. So what happens here is you're going to have a variety of both international and national financial and economic factors causing a depression, decreased production, decreased incomes, decreased wage growth, all kinds of things. But then what's going to happen is as of 1933 is that you're going to have someone saying, I have the solution. So give me the power and I will give you the solution. That's the case that's made. Okay. And that is, therefore, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not really sure that you could, if you knew that that had occurred, be at all surprised by what happened in 2020, like at all. But what's interesting is like, almost nobody remembers these things about the Great Depression. There's, there's a book by Justin Raimondo about, published by ISI, about the, what he calls the old right capital O, capital R. And it, it, it is mainly that American conservatives only really come into self-consciousness when they have to begin to fight the New Deal because they have to articulate, why do we think people should make their own economic decisions? Why do we think that people should be able to determine for themselves how much they're going to sell something for? Or why do we think the government should not offer a farmer money not to plant crops? or incentivize him so heavily to plant, let's say, two crops that he plants throughout the Midwest, almost nothing at this point except corn and soybeans. Why do we think that's wrong? Because until you have a crisis, generally, you don't know what you really think. So the old right comes into existence with people like Garrett Garrett and John Flynn and Rose Wilder Lane, who's Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter, in order to say why they believe that what Franklin Roosevelt is doing is wrong. The way to sort of sum all of that up, I think in the most coherent possible fashion, is to say that their contention was that if human nature is perennial, government should not take it upon itself to take away liberties in order to fix human nature, which it cannot do. Mm-hmm. It can adjust for human nature. It can govern in accordance with the existence of human nature, but it cannot fix the fact that people are greedy or that they will generally try to scam each other or that if they can lie and beg from each other instead of working, that's what they will in fact do. I'm pretty sure if we just got rid of those other people, everything would be fine. (laughs) Right. So this is another thing is that what you're going to get in any time of crisis, especially from those pr- proposing holistic, unitary, universal solutions, is that you will get holistic, unitary, universal blames assigned. Mm. So it will be assigned to Wall Street or it will be assigned to bankers or something. So a good example of this is that you get this bank run on March 3rd, 1933, Because people have realized by then that the currency is going to be devalued and inflation is going to skyrocket when President Roosevelt is inaugurated the next day. And then he famously declares a bank holiday for, I think, is it maybe 10 days from March 4th to March 14th. So the day before his inauguration, because they're then still inaugurated in March, you get a bank run throughout the country. What actually is this? 
Is it a proof that the government should therefore regulate banking much more tightly? No, because after March 3rd, you're going to find out that 92% of American banks are solvent on March 4th. This is not a question about the solvency of the banks or the financial system. It's a question about how human beings behave when they believe that something is about to go away. We saw the same thing. It's just not regulated, at least not publicly or with the same seriousness, with the toilet paper runs at the beginning of COVID. How do human beings behave when they think something is going away? They panic buy or they panic acquire or they panic call in. That's what they do. That doesn't mean that you need to change everything that you're doing with your life from one day to the next. When you say that almost nobody remembers these things, I think that's um, perennially true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and it's been, I don't know. I think my assumption growing up was that there were certain things that we could not forget as a society. Uh, And that assumption was based upon the errant belief that everyone else was both receiving the same education I received and as um, conscientiously bought into believing it uh, as Mm. I was. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, 2001, September 11, that doesn't mean much to quite a few people, let alone Kennedy, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Let alone 1929. The, and if they're anything, they are a a small piece of a myth as opposed to a, yeah. Uh, yeah, a moment yeah. of complexity that right. to provide wisdom, right? Right. Um, and so I, this is one of those, I'm saying this, like we can't fix this. Please, everyone, expect for everyone to forget most of the stuff that's important and then <laughs> do it wrong right. again. Right. Like expect right. this that's now. Right. This is normal, yeah. which would mean, why giving all the power to one group of people who will control it forever is not a great idea because they're going to forget and, and, you know, control yeah. in a bad way. Um, That's right. the, the best defense is for the majority of us to have the ability to make our own decisions where and when we can, um, because that's where we're going to see the most locally memorable, memorable stuff, right? People locally are going to remember things that happened three and four and five years ago, much more than what happened on the news three and four and five years ago. Um, and so lo- local solutions, I, I mean, our listener base is like, yeah, of course. Well, this is why, if, yes. Uh, if only everyone would agree with us. Yes. But no one's going to remember these things. And so it's, it behooves you to become one who remembers and to pass on where you can. Yeah. Why does no one remember these things? Uh, because we're driven by consumption. Uh, right. Yeah. Although if it's a perennial yeah. issue, it's not just consumption. It, it, it's, yeah, this it's is bigger it, than just America. It is not just, yeah, and it's bigger than America, and it's not it's not just consumption. It, it's almost a human incapacity to handle complexity. Yeah. Because yeah. the thing that I find is, especially when I go back and I read things roughly contemporary with whatever it is that we're talking about any given week, okay? So for next time in looking at the nature of the New Deal politically, how they put that coalition together, what they did with that coalition, how they isolated their enemies there are people at the time being like, this is how it's working. And then there's a historian that completely politically disagrees with that person from that time, maybe 30 years later being like, yes, that's exactly how it worked. This guy who was their vehement opponent at the time actually understood who they were and what they were doing. The problem is, the problem is 
human beings are extremely bad at handling complexity, generally speaking. Okay. And I, I think that that is, that is partly because creatures of habit are unable to recalibrate their habits. Click where? So for that reason, they think that, you know, the economy is the same thing as the fortunes of their bank account, or the economy is the same thing as, you know, that, you know, the, the, the state of the market at the closing bell that day, or whatever the case may be. And then they behave in ways that are extremely simplistic and, and destructive. As if you said, well, I'm going to build a house. Well, what do you have? I have a single claw hammer. Okay, go for it. You have no other tools. Yes, that's all I've got. I'm going to build the house. This conviction that your own simplicity of mind is the same thing as the world is, I think, perennial. It explains human behavior because I I don't think people go literally crazy. And I, I really don't like, especially when people try to talk about politics and they talk about these crazy, you know, whatever, Democrats, whatever, right? Transgenders, as a, I don't know if that's a noun. I don't know if it's supposed to be a noun. Anyway, but they they say that they're mentally ill. I I, I <laughs> transgender people are are mentally ill just in a different way than you mean. They're not mentally ill in their political behavior. They're behaving rationally. The problem is they're behaving rationally in a very small framework. Like, how am I going to get all my money back in the next hour? Or how am I going to get this thing that I want in the next six months? It's a limited time horizon. So what we're what we're saying here is most people are natural numbers game gamblers. They do not have a long time horizon. They do not have a an understanding of the complexity of human behavior. And they live accordingly. It does make sense in their own head. It is rational within their own framework. Yeah, the quick fix, the quick fix look, right? Um, yeah. And, and again, the solution. This is where, uh, as much as I kind of do hope Trump runs and, and kind of do hope Trump wins, but uh, the idea that he is the solution, that he has the answers, that it all will work out, this oversimplifies the complexity of the problem. Of what's e- wrong, yeah. Even if it's all a one-world organization trying to destroy the world through right. a complex plan. But then if it's not, and it's a whole bunch of different groups, yeah. and then if it's not just that, but it's a whole bunch of different incompetent groups, like the, the layers upon layers of impossible to fix issues that are effectively the perennial human nature of our arrogance running into biting off more we can chew and attempt to yeah. quick fix everything all over the place all at once, <laughs> right? Like, like there is no, oh, let's just kind of turn the switch on and it'll all be different. And, and so I think if I'm taking a lesson from you today, uh, it is to remember that and then to remember that I forget that, to remember that uh, it is my tendency in a daily life to search for quick fixes and single solutions to oversimplify. Some of this is necessary. You got to decide what you're going to eat, right? You got to at a certain point. But uh, when it comes to uh, how I'm going to choose to spend my time, uh, when it comes to what I am going to do financially with this or that income to uh, slow the whole thing down a little bit and realize that my natural instincts are rational in the wrong framework and I need the right framework. I need to, I need to look bigger, see broader. Um, And if, you know, this really does hit, you know, store up for yourself where moth and rust do not destroy. I mean, it's not, not a part of that. Um, But to, uh, 
to stop assuming that if I just did this or if I do this or maybe I'll just do that, it'll change everything. It won't change everything. Um, I can change small things. That's fine. But then that's having the right framework. You're seeing it for what it is, a right. complex scenario. Yeah, and I think the idea of a, of a longer time horizon or a larger framework is possible because when you see things as perennial or expected based on past events, that creates a much greater deal of patience in you. And it is impatience that drives both speculation as opposed, if you want to accept that framework, speculation as opposed to investment is that the speculator is impatient and the investor is patient. He does not need to log on that day and get a better return that day. He can he can ride out years of a down market. Similarly, human beings that are able to have a longer time horizon are going to be able to exercise patience. And that doesn't just mean that they're putting up with bad stuff. It also means that they're making wiser decisions because they understand what is likely to occur rather than simply what they want to happen, especially right now. So wisdom can't really coexist with impatience. That's why you get these admonitions to be slow to speak and quick to hear, or admonitions to watch the way of someone or of something in his behavior in things like Proverbs. It's because in order to observe a way, you have to see things more fully, right? Over a longer time period or in various aspects of life. Or the great benefit you have is that you can go back and you can say there are multiple international and national causes to the beginning of the Great Depression. There are multiple facets to how it began to be fixed. We fundamentally changed as a nation, especially as we're going to talk about next time. We fundamentally changed as a nation when we accepted that the government would provide those fixes for us generally all within, this is where the phrase first comes from, all within the first hundred days of a presidential administration. That within the first hundred days, this man, along with his associated wizards, would be able to solve these things. And that basic idea was at that time so new in America that when Herbert Hoover was writing about it, he described it as these European diseases. <laughs> that we had not previously lived in this way, that we would think about the government as a solution for our daily lives. It was there to fix various things, you know, make sure that criminals were not running amok. It wasn't there really to like fix my life. And that if I didn't have freedom, all of the other things would be sort of like living in prison. Like I would have leisure time and I would have time for education and I would have clothing and food and a roof over my head. And maybe the government would, just like in jail, provide all of that for me, but I would still be in jail. And that would actually be worse than anything. So what you have is that when you begin to consider perennial human behaviors, you also begin to consider perennial human questions. And here's something that's not a perennial human question. How can I get as rich as possible, as fast as possible, with as little responsibility as possible. It's not a perennial human question for someone pursuing wisdom. <laughs> In any case, it's a perennial human question for people that have addictions, gambling problems, sure. But if you're pursuing wisdom, or if you think of yourself as a reasonable human being, it's not a perennial question, because on its face, 
it's just going to wind you up in slavery. I mean, you just want to become the slave of a rich man and then he'll provide everything for you. And that is in fact where, according to the contentions of, these are sort of the grandfathers of conservatism now, that is in fact where America ends up by the end of the Great Depression is essentially a slave nation. So this is long before masks and all of that stuff. They said, you guys are, think about this the next time you see a nostalgic photo from the 1950s. <laughs> they were saying 20 years before that, you guys are slaves. You have traded everything that is actually worth having for everything that is merely temporary. It is not good for a soul to be without knowledge, and he who hastens with his feet sins. Proverbs 19, verse 2, you're listening to Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, sir. You wouldn't be here.